This episode contains strong language and discusses domestic abuse. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Diora and this is Broccoli Book Club. This is the Book Club episode. You can read along with us, make suggestions, send in your thoughts and comments via voice note. The episode format is split into three sections. We start at the front cover where we talk about our first impressions and expectations. Then we delve into the actual book. And finally, end at the back where we focus on our reflections and takeaways. This month, we're discussing the phenomenal memoir In the Dream House by Carmen Maria Machado. However, we're doing things a little differently. Normally, this episode would be followed up by an interview with the author, but Carmen is currently working hard on other exciting projects. So this month, we wanted to celebrate more than one author who also explores elements of domestic abuse in their writing. Our next episode features Megan Nolan, the author of Acts of Desperation. So make sure you add the book to your reading list. But back to In the Dream House. This book is a memoir and a diary-like account from Carmen Maria Machado, in which she highlights her volatile experiences of a toxic relationship with an unnamed woman. In the Dream House was one of those books I've had mentioned so many times in conversation, but never quite knew what it was about. As I got stuck into the book, it became clear that it was a heavy but an important read. We hear and see so much about abuse within heteronormative relationships, and there are countless of examples of important literature on that topic. But reading about abuse in queer relationships subverted my understanding of domestic abuse and made me think about the way we subconsciously attach gender roles to the abuser and the abused. Seeing as there's not a huge deal of exploration of queer domestic abuse within literature, I thought this would be a perfect Broccoli Book Club read. The author takes the reader through her almost lucid dreamlike experiences of the abuse. The book is peppered with poetry, historical references, and even allows you to do a choose-your-own-adventure-style quiz to express her entrapment in a seemingly inescapable nightmare. Or as she calls it, the dream house. This emotionally raw and honest memoir almost acts like an archive. Not just for the author, but for everyone else too. It highlights the fact that queer domestic abuse has existed as long as queer relationships have. Joining me in today's book club are Hamza Jahanzeb and Hannah Walker-Brown. Hamza is a publishing pro who has worked at Icon Books and Jonathan Ball Publishers. And Hannah is the creative director at Broccoli Productions. Now the intros are done, let's begin by discussing the book. This is definitely the sort of book that I'd want to read because it's about a queer story, a queer person, about relationships. Uh, would absolutely sound like something I'd pick up in, you know, the bookshop or from my library. 
And what about you, Hannah? Would you typically choose to read a memoir like this? I wouldn't, you know. I'm not a big fan of memoirs unless the writing is really exceptional or if it's someone I'm really interested about that I know has an exceptional story that I want to go deeper in that I can't just kind of read about in an article online. So I read this because I love the author. I think she's just phenomenal, like razor sharp, and I just knew it had to be great. So it's not a memoir that... I would usually pick up, but I would pick this up just for her kind of style and skill alone. And I wasn't disappointed, which is always nice. That's good to know. Well, for myself, I'm a bit of a memoir fiend. I absolutely love Deborah Levy. I just really love being in other people's shoes and getting inside other people's heads. So definitely this is up my street for sure. What did you think of the title in the dream house? What sorts of themes did you expect to crop up just by looking at the cover? For me, I thought perhaps it was going to be a very intimate read because I feel that the body and the way that it's contorted in the sort of house shape but juxtaposed against the bright orange cover really made it sound like there's going to be a roller coaster of emotions <laughs> that one has to go through which I would say absolutely did it made me feel lots of different feelings but it absolutely you know again provided that prism by which we see the writer detail their journey of love of relationships of their body and societal norms which I thought was quite striking Yeah, I agree. I think there's definitely an intimacy to it, but also like the boldness of the colour and the font and the shapes are so sharp with like the slashes through. It almost depicts that violence, especially the kind of softness of the body behind it. So that kind of essence of violence is very much there from your first viewing of the book of the cover. Yeah, that's really interesting. I didn't really think about violence when I saw the book itself. I'd heard about the book before from my friend Annie, so I knew that it would be touching on domestic abuse, but I didn't really understand how Carmen would tell her story through the concept of a dream house itself. So I think, you know, looking at the cover, it's bright orange with a house and the floors are kind of slanting as well. And this picture of a person's body is inset within the house itself. So I guess from that, I just understood maybe there is a message about our bodies being our own houses and how this book might be talking about someone's life story or trauma or whatever has built this house. But yeah, I would say the cover is actually pretty abstract and I don't think it gives that much away. It makes a lot more sense once you'd read the book. Yeah, and I think now you said that, it's almost like the body is trapped in the house. Like this body is too big by scale for this house. It's not like there's tiny little people in there. It's kind of really compressed into these shapes but again like you said I think that's probably hindsight like once you've read the book you're like oh yeah it must mean that because you know we've got all the insight it feels more striking now I think knowing what's inside it let's delve into the book itself I asked Hannah and Hamza whether they liked the unique formatting of the memoir The formatting of the book was exceptional, although to begin with, I found it quite disorientating, which is, I think, I guess what 
you know, the author was intending. So if you think about the flaws in a house, I felt as though every chapter or every kind of rupture in this grand text was almost like you were going up, you know, an escalator of a 68 story building. And every chapter was one of those flaws which you'd meet. But also I think with the formatting of this, I actually found the secondary text she references throughout from, you know, Gaslit, the movie, there's a particular way about, you know, famous last words, Dreamhouse has a famous last words, for example. And I think that, again, was just so rich. She has really taken out the razor and sharpened it because this book represents the sorts of queer erasure that was happening. And she talks about this book being the kind of start of a conversation about these relationships, about things that need to be sort of archived almost. And I thought that she did an excellent job in doing that. So for me, that's sort of what I felt. Do you know what? I keep coming back to this like analogy of when you unpack trauma, it's almost like, you know, when you've been using a bag for a long time and there's all sorts of shit in it. There's a coffee card from someplace you visited four years ago. You went once, they gave you a stamp. There's pens. There's, you know, maybe a crushed sweet and you empty this bag out and you sit with it and you're like, right, moving forward, what do I actually need? What can I throw away or what am I going to save for later? And I think when you go through something traumatic, it's quite similar. Like you empty all your shit out, you look at it in front of you and decide, you know, what can I kind of deal with right now? And I think that's kind of what I felt with the structure was even though there was kind of a very strong Lydia narrative of her story of, you know, meeting the woman to then, you know, what happens at the end, that trauma, like there isn't any sense in the way it goes. You know, sometimes you think this and then all of a sudden you're on this other memory. The razor sharp thing is something I thought about a lot because it was almost like being tattooed with the words, like that painful pleasure but you're left with it after. Like, it doesn't just kind of go. It's almost like she's gone, right, you, come here, turn the needle on and just kind of engraved it into your skin. So for me, that's where the format came in. Yeah, wow, I really, really like the way you visualised that. I felt like I definitely went through your journey of reading that book as well. As I've mentioned before, you know, it is far from traditional and in some ways it definitely does read as quite disjointed but if anything this probably gave me an understanding of how Carmen remembers all of it and what her headspace would have been like probably writing it and oftentimes memories of trauma can really just come at you very randomly but I also was going to ask like what did you think of her use of footnotes and also the different styles of writing that she kind of employed. You know, it wasn't all written in the same voice, I would say, and it, it was all very different. You know, some parts felt like she was telling almost like a fairy tale. Other parts felt really personal. Some parts were just direct speech. You know, how did you feel about her choice of the way she wrote the separate Dreamhouse chapters as well? So I think the way that she compiled it with the footnotes and also I think the cross genre, you know, mixing nonfiction, general nonfiction, but also this memoir, I thought it was a really clever way to do it. So one of, you know, the chapters I quite liked was when she had the title, 
in the chapter beginning dream house as choose your own adventure and the register trademark mm. sign and then she gives you the option you know if you want to go to page 190 if you want to go to page 191 or 193 and i think those are the sort of you know really clever stylistic techniques that i think a writer who's really thought about you know their intentions about what they want this book to do and i think I've never really had that in a reading of a memoir or a book that actually crosses or transcends the genres as as seamlessly as this does. So for me, having footnotes, but also having that kind of interactiveness with the reader really made it quite a fun read as well, because it meant that you can choose the different options, but you get the best of both worlds because you're inevitably going to continue reading and follow the journey as Carmen presents it to us, the reader. So I thought that that was very cleverly done. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, domestic abuse, obviously, so multifaceted, trauma, so multifaceted. And I think you can definitely see that reflected in the book. And I think one of the things I loved would kind of the chapters where you just got one quote. And it was like, you just really needed that one quote after a big bit of text. But it was often that one quote that again, was like the gut punch, I think. And actually, the bit you were talking about with the choose your own adventure, it was so dark but also so powerful when you actually read what those things were you can't choose your own adventure actually you think you have a choice but you don't because you keep going back and you keep repeating these patterns so I think everything she was feeling I could feel within the formatting within the kind of the multi-layers of the different genres you know in, in one minute you're here the next minute you're there sometimes everything is internal sometimes it's external you know you're having all these conversations with yourself will she be violent will I be okay convincing yourself yes it is okay you know so I think it felt so authentic to kind of what she was going through as she was going through it. Mm. I'm so glad you brought up the choose your own adventure part because that was actually something I was going to ask as well. That part for me reinforced the fact that abuse can become so normalised and predictable that she almost knew all the options of what could unfold if she reacted in different ways and I thought that was such an interesting choice and an interesting way of portraying domestic abuse and I think something like this can come off a little naff if you don't do it well but it just shows how well she's done it because I didn't for one second think oh this is a bit tacky or it just doesn't quite flow as well as the rest of the book it did feel a bit like rage coming through those bits you know someone who's really desperate at the edge like what would you do and you do it and you go back and you're like oh my god like I don't know what I'd do I think for me it was more kind of thinking about the shades of nuance in domestic abuse and violence and this in particular I mean just before you're having to choose your own adventure she said something along the lines of you know you've been moving all night as in you've interrupted my sleep and you can tell that you know what the protagonist will have said although the fact that she's thinking about the options that she would have had almost makes it seem like it's a game where she's going to lose or at the boss level i.e when she comes kind of locking horns with this final stage boss she's not going to win and it's just this slippery slope and I think that portrayal of how 
abuse is sort of, you know, exacerbated in our sort of wider society, I think it really makes you think about what you're doing to look out for friends or loved ones or family or people who you know in your life who are going through a similar kind of experience, which is horrific, but it really casts a light on the insidious nature of how these people are creating this kind of environment where people are feeling gaslit uh, that again just sort of reinforces into the fact that she does hold as accountable this Carmen in this yeah. book. Were there any quotes that stood out for you both in the book? I've actually written a few down but I was wondering if you wanted to share anything. One of the short quotes that I loved which isn't sad or scary although it is heart-wrenching it's page 251 and it just says two or three things I know for sure. And one of them is that telling the story all the way through is an act of love. And it's a quote by Dorothy Allison. I just thought, fucking hell, like she's told us this whole story. And yet it is an act of love to herself because she owes it to herself to be honest, to put it out there, because God knows how many people this will ultimately end up helping. There's another thing I really liked is that whenever she's talking about how it feels in her body, she says a kick. So a kick between her legs when she's like aroused, a kick between her shoulders when she's scared. Like I think there's a kick in her stomach. So even the way she describes the emotions she has for the woman in the dream house are still violent. That emotion isn't safe. Like even the emotion of how she feels is going to get her. And then my other favorite line is on page 62. And it's about enduring her punishment in peace and she says the bite of the fight has sweetened whiskey unraveled by ice and just that kind of image you know the hard alcohol being kind of diluted with ice and going watery I was like oh god this woman like how did she learn to write like this it's just outstanding well I mean in terms of quotes the second quote from the book from Zora Neale Hurston if you are silent about your pain they'll kill you and say you enjoyed it and that for me, I thought was really quite something to behold when diving into this book. And that for me was really quite setting me up for what was to come about the fact that this is going to perhaps involve people being silent and being shut up in a way by which kind of really handcuffs their freedoms. And actually that follows on to one of my favourite chapters on page 120. It's Dreamhouse as Musical. You do not realise how much you sing until she tells you to stop singing. It seems that you sing everywhere, in the shower, washing the dishes, getting dressed. And again, that quote about being silent, this one in particular talks about her behaviours and how this person is saying that, oh, well, it seems... And that, again, brings it into the mind of someone that, you know, they might not actually be doing this, but they're utilising and leveraging the fact that they know that you're maybe quite conscious of the fact that you do sing, but then using it as a way to cause an avalanche on you mentally and emotionally. Yeah, wow, thank you so much for sharing that. Hamza, I'm so glad you picked up on this one, on Zora's one, because I've wrote that down as well. And this one really made me think about the way victims of abuse are often silenced and gaslit to the point where they don't even know what their own narrative is. So for me, this quote is about owning your truth without letting someone else overwrite your story. She talks a lot about gaslighting as well. Later on in the book, that's kind of what I took away from it, about her owning her narrative and not letting someone else silence her into um <laughs> don't know I was gonna say her into submission yeah, yeah.
I was going to ask what you interpreted to be the dream house. I mean, for me, I thought it was almost like you, an abstract positioning. It could be her body, but also it could be her physical home as well. So it's the home where at one point all three people in this relationship enter a polyamorous relationship. So I feel like at some points it kind of flitters between her mind and this person and their body as we've seen depicted on the front cover. But also I think at the point where all three of these people come to live in the same place, it's also a place where they're cohabiting as a polyamorous couple and start, you know, this kind of merged relationship. I feel like it flitters between the two throughout depending on where we are in these vignettes that she's sort of giving us yeah I definitely think now it's more of a body and trauma lives in our mind it lives in our body and certain things release it in different ways and to me it felt like that's your most personal and sacred space it's the only space that you can control and I think in abuse that is the space that is violated it's your mind and your body it's not the building you live in or the park you go to it's you However, the other image that I could just keep coming back to that always was in my head is kind of this museum of memory that kind of going around it and seeing these different things almost encased in glass, like you're detached from it enough now that you can see things for what they are or you can pick up the headphones and put them on and listen to that conversation, but it's not part of you. So I'm not sure. I think maybe it shifts throughout, but for me, it's two spaces. Yeah, I guess in an answer to my own question, I thought the quote by Louise Bourgeois when she says, you pile up associations the way you pile up bricks, memory itself is a form of architecture. That to me kind of reinforced my understanding of the dream house being her body. But yeah, also like on page 92, it's really interesting as well because she talks about having a room to herself as a kid but her family always reminding her that it wasn't her room, it was their room. And that's really interesting in terms of the lack of autonomy over her room being similar to the lack of autonomy of her own body. And well, the author gently introduces us to patterns of abusive behaviour throughout the book. Did you have any preconceptions about how these patterns are formed before reading this specific narrative of it? And how did reading this book make you think differently about domestic abuse? I read a book called Look What You Made Me Do by Helen Wormsley Johnson mm. um, a few years ago, which is about a memoir of living a life through the lens of this coercive, controlling person called Frank. And that I already had some insight, actually. And I think this is specifically really important as a book that archives, you know, queer relationships, in particular queer abusive relationships, I wouldn't have known about some of the other things like abusiveness with the bruise on the arm, for example. And, you know, some of the kind of physical abuse, I was expecting it, but didn't really expect it, if you know what I mean. Flying into tempers and rage was quite shocking because of the language used as well. It was quite vulgar about, you know, particular body parts. And I found that quite shocking because I thought it'd be a bit more insidious and not actually as physical as it did get. Yeah, like it's really interesting. I just want to pick up on the point you made about maybe being surprised about some aspects of the physical manifestations of the abuse. And I think that is interesting because it highlights a lot of the ways we see abuse in really gendered terms. And from my understanding anyway, I've always seen the physical manifestations of domestic abuse is quite like a masculine thing. And I've always associated that with men. So I think that's why it's so surprising in ways when you're reading this and you're like, hang on, 
this isn't this binary thing. It's very complex and nuanced. And I think that is why it's so important that this book has been written. And it is about archiving different forms of domestic abuse that can also take place in same-sex relationships. Yeah, it just opened my eyes up, but I can't even imagine what it would do to someone who might find themselves in that situation and suddenly it exists and suddenly it's plausible and suddenly you're seen. I think it's incredible, like Hamza said, to be able to open it up into that space. Terrifying, obviously, heart-wrenching. We're all capable of of evil, but the patterns I totally recognised. And I think that almost made it worse in a way, like you almost preempt what is going to happen. and, And it does happen because, you know, the patterns in domestic abuse are very similar. I think knowing those patterns, seeing them play out like this, but then putting it in that queer space is what was different for me. And what emotions did you feel while reading in the dream house? Um, I felt anger because I felt the way in which the unnamed woman would be doing these different types of things that would cause her to reevaluate her self-worth, her self-confidence. It was putting somebody down. So I really wanted to sort of shout at her and say, stop it, like, this is not okay. But at the same time, I really wanted to just sort of hold Carmen up and give her a big hug and say, it's going to be okay. It really is going to be okay. Because you just don't know what that person's going through in terms of what their mind is thinking. And I just wanted to say to her, you will find a way out of this very toxic relationship. And you don't deserve this. You deserve so much better. And something you just kind of said then that I picked up on was she doesn't name the woman, so she doesn't give her that power. And I think so often in domestic abuse and violent situations, the perpetrator is named or it's their photo and you know the media are so bad at reporting this. And it's like, don't put the photo of the person that's made her life hell all over Twitter, all over the news, because it's just a constant reminder. And actually, you know, maybe it's for libel purposes that she can't name her, but she never gives her that power. Like she takes away that identity from her, which feels to me like strength as well and for so long having herself taken away it's sort of not payback but she's taken the power from her I felt impressed I wanted to be her mate I think her mate John is like such a hero in this like had the guy she lives with who hates the woman because I felt she was very likable and personable and even though she is just beyond exceptional writer she felt like she really carried us with her and like trusted us tell all of this stuff so I felt very safe with her which is kind of a weird feeling in such violence and and such an unsafe situation but I guess I trusted her voice but rage and and sadness like real fucking sadness the page after page you think it can't get worse and it does yeah definitely I felt really sorry for her of course reading it but I was equally just amazed at her strength in writing this so beautifully and in such a raw way and you know she is a survivor of domestic abuse and just made me think of how many stories we don't hear but yeah of course it just made me angry that she was subject to such horrific abuse and I'm glad I'm glad that she created the space to write about it and has reached so many people with her story so Yeah, I also had a question about whether you could relate to the intensity of their relationship. So not necessarily the parts about the abuse, but just how intense the whole relationship itself felt. So I was wondering if it made you reevaluate some of the relationships or friendships you've had that felt very intense. Absolutely. I think, you know, it's definitely been a way of 
looking back on what you've had with somebody in your love life in my particular case you know like previous partners you know there were elements of us being very kind of intense and that's just a continual seeing each other or being with each other for a prolonged period but it could also be applied to friends and also family members and loved ones with whom you know you can have an intense relationship and it can almost be quite you know, full on. And it makes you think that, gosh, I can't believe, you know, gosh, I need a break or I'm feeling quite unbalanced. You know, those are the kinds of feelings which Carmen was going through, I guess, with this woman. And I think it was so relatable in parts, but also some parts it really wasn't. And also it's that thing about first love, isn't it? Because this is her first girlfriend. And first love, you're always like, you know, I will die for you. And it's so intense and all encompassing. And, you know, then you wonder, is it just infatuation years on where you're like, why don't I feel that you know, lightning bolt thing. And you're like, oh, that's not really love. That's just desire. And I think this is complete desire. And there's that great line on page 44, where she just says, you would let her swallow you whole if she could. And it's like, you'll just give everything over. And I think especially when you're younger, especially when it's first love, everyone kind of goes through that where you think in order to keep someone happy you have to do everything for them or you have to give up everything you like to make sure that they're okay and that translates in family that translates in friendships like if you're the people pleaser if you're the one keeping the peace or you know your parents have had kind of abusive tendencies then that's kind of how you know love is that you have to keep other people happy, which means that when you come to being an adult and you're having relationships, you think, right, well, I better kind of give myself to you because that's the only way that you're going to love me back. So, yeah, it definitely, definitely made me think kind of a lot about my relationships. But I think it's mostly just that intensity of first love and desire and and how that gets blurred, like when sex comes into the equation and like physicality and who we give our bodies to like not just our mind but like our physical body and how that gets so murky when like oh the sex is really great but they treat me like shit but I feel really good when we have sex and that's kind of what she has here is this very intense physical relationship like absolutely fucking her mind something rotten but it's kind of those things you hold on to so it definitely I think there's so much in that you know what is love? Can you separate kind of physical, emotional? What's more important? Where do you place value? And how kind of within all of that, do you keep a piece of yourself if you don't know that that's how you should love? And I guess people bang on all the time, like you have to love yourself first. And like you really do. Otherwise, you know, someone will swallow you whole, like she says, and and you'll let them because you don't know any other way. So yeah, it definitely got me thinking a lot. And I was like, oh, God, yeah, I probably would have done the same when I was 18, 19, 20. So we finally reached the back cover. I asked Hannah and Hamza about their greatest takeaways. I would like to say that the greatest takeaway is that you will find happiness. And I think, especially for Carmen, the plot twist in the end with her mm. finally revealing her kind of, you know, wife-to-be Val was a really nice way to, you know, finish off this project because I felt we're so, we were all so emotionally invested in this project and we thought, get out, please get out. You shut the book and you said, right, I have the privilege of getting out. But actually, there is light at the end of the tunnel and it shows you that there is hope for people who are finding themselves in that kind of situation where they're so 
affected by what this person is doing in this abusive relationship that they can get out and that there is hope. That was my takeaway. I think my takeaway is not as positive, but it's that there is so much more that needs to be done for stories like this, of this nature, for domestic abuse, domestic violence, in any space, but especially in queer spaces. You know, this book should be part of the curriculum in schools, that you should be made to read this book. Because I think, yes, it does an amazing job of putting queer domestic abuse under the spotlight, but the patterns are the same in any domestic abuse situation and I think she unpacks it in such a way that you not only really care but you understand and I think there's observations in there that anyone could see within the body of the work and you'd be able to identify that outside if you know a friend was going through something or a family member so I think there's a lot more work to be done and also we should campaign to get it on the school curriculum is my is my take out. I love that. I think my greatest takeaway is that we owe queer people true reflections and depictions of their stories and not just these kind of sanitized versions uh, we think people want to hear because, you know, I think sometimes people are scared of talking about these things because we're fighting for queer rights. And, you know, there is that fear that talking about these kinds of stories will somehow get in the way of that. So what's the one word that you'd use to summarise in the dream house and why? I'm going to say piercing because it was violent, definitely stuck to my skin or penetrated it. Like, I don't think this book will ever leave me in some ways. Also, again, we kind of spoke about the, the razor sharpness of her writing and the courage of that. It feels pretty knifey. So I'm going to say piercing. My word for how I describe in the dream house is dazzling because I felt that the way in which Carmen writes is exceptional. It's extremely bright and it kind of is blinding actually because mm, it feels bright. as though when you're reading it, you're immersed in this and you're blinded by nothing, but you're so sucked in this world that she's describing to you, you almost feel as though you're with her. What's yours, Diora? I've chosen Bountiful because I think, as I've mentioned before, there's just so much. The only way I'm kind of visualising it is like it's growing, even though the book is done and she's finished with it. But it feels like it's this thing that just grows within itself. And finally, I was wondering if there's one person you could give this book to, who would it be and why? Everyone. No, you can't say that. I've got that written down. (laughs) That's my answer. Everyone. Every kind of, I hate the expression, but coming of age teenager. I think people argue that kids shouldn't be exposed to these kinds of things. And I'm not saying go and read it to your like three-year-old as a bedtime story. But I think anyone of that age where, you know, sex becomes part of your life or desire or infatuation, as much as you're kind of getting sex education, this stuff needs to be front and centre. So... I'm going to say everyone in college. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I'm actually going to go with one person. <laughs> and Ooh. I'm going to go with uh, Gavin Williamson, who is the <laughs> education secretary. I think he'd benefit from reading about this and hopefully he can put it on the national curriculum. 
I think he would benefit from this and a lot of other books and possibly a heart too, but that's just my opinion. Um, but for me, I also wrote down everyone and I know that it feels like such a cop-out to say, honestly, but I just feel but it's like true. Everyone, everyone needs to be aware of this absolutely. book. Absolutely. I know everyone's like, oh my God, I read this great book. Everyone should read it. You don't really mean that. This I mean. Thanks to Hamza and Hannah for contributing to this episode and thank you for listening to Broccoli Book Club. In next month's book club, we'll be discussing Eating Animals by Jonathan Safran Foer. So get reading now and send in your thoughts and comments via voice note to voicenote at broccolicontent.com. Don't forget to share the podcast and join the conversation using the hashtag Broccoli Book Club. And if you liked what you heard, why not subscribe and leave a review on your favourite podcast app? I've been your host, Diora, and you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at the Diora. Broccoli Book Club is produced by Jarja Mohammed, assistant produced by Rory Boyle, executive produced by Renee Richardson, and mixed by Ben Williams. This is a Broccoli Production.